But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you, and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades, or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life, and you will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he should set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of, we, we, of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are fall off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. My name is Matt. One of the pastors here, my clip fell off, so I had to go to the back, which makes for a long walk up here. It's good to see you all. We are in a series in the book of Acts. Uh, so far, the events of Acts have been incredibly momentous. Jesus has ascended, and after ascending, and right, right before ascending, he looks at his disciples and says, I want you to stay here in Jerusalem. I want you to hang out because I'm about to do something. I'm, I'm about to give you a gift. Something's about to happen. And, and sure enough, 
10 days later, the Holy Spirit comes and dwells, tongues of fire, there's wind, there's, there's men and, and, and women that are talking in all kinds of tongues that are understood, declaring the mighty works of God. And then the first thing that happens after that, when the Holy Spirit's come and, and there's all this noise and people are, are clamoring about is a sermon, which is frankly just the best justification for my job I've ever seen. Um, now, you'll notice, and maybe some of you will naturally point out that it did take Dan probably about three and a half to four minutes to read that passage, to read Peter's sermon. And you may be wondering, how come we can't have four-minute sermons? And uh, the, the reason is twofold. One, it's going to take us 40 minutes to explain what Peter means in all of this. But, uh, but on top of that, I'd like to point to verse 40 so that I have biblical proof. And with many other words... He bore witness and continued to exhort them. So I'm thinking those, that's like an hour, easy. So that's, that's my exegesis of that portion. Everyone's in agreement. I have proven myself to be a faithful steward of the text. Uh, this morning, we're going to answer one, one question. That is, what does it mean to become a Christian? And I believe that as we look at that question, it, it naturally pours into, it naturally manifests that, that some of the very same elements of what it means to become a Christian are vital, central elements to what it means to grow as a Christian, to, to become more like Christ, to be, as we say as a mission, to be transformed into the image of Christ, to experience gospel transformation. This is a long passage. If you got nervous during the reading going like, how in the world are we going to deal with all of this? The answer is, I don't know, but I, I think it's going to be okay. This is a really, it's lots of topics, and there are certain themes that are going to come up in some of the future sermons that, uh, that are preached throughout the book of Acts, but I want to center on, on verse 37 right now. We're going to come out of this verse to kind of lead us through the, this passage. It said in verse 37 that the description of what happens to the crowd, it says, now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? I'd like to suggest this morning that what it means to become a Christian is to be cut to the heart. And so we're going to look, that, look at that in three different directions. We're going to say, how are we cut to the heart? How, how are they cut to the heart? And therefore, by implication, how are we cut to the heart? What is the response to being cut to the heart? And lastly, what is the result of being cut to the heart? So first of all, how are they cut to the heart? And, and by inflection, how, how, are, how are we cut to the heart? Well, first, I would say that they were struck by the truth about Jesus. They were struck by the truth about Jesus. You look at verse 36, and it says, Let all the house of Israel, therefore, know for certain, know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified that they may know for sure, for sure, for sure. This is, not some, this is not some good feeling philosophy that Peter is describing to them. This is not a manufactured religious construct that might help them cope with some of the difficult days ahead. No, no, this is pointing to an objective reality, to facts, to, to proof, to, to a very clear and logic, logical argumentation. Peter's using his brain here and he's saying, listen, Think about this well. Think about the reality and the truth of this because it is true. You must see the truth about Jesus. Christianity is not a religion that works regardless of whether it's true or not. Christianity works because it is true and transforms us. It is 
lodged, it is centered in reality. So here's how P- Peter walks them through. He's how he shows them Jesus. He starts with what they're experiencing right now, right? They all came together because something happened. There was this loud sound and there's, and there's people talking in all kinds of languages. So they all gathered together and he's saying, first of all, let me explain to you what's going on right now. You're, you're all good Jews. You're here faithfully at the, at the, at the Feast of Pentecost. And so, so you're, you understand that Joel talked a long time ago about something really significant. That God long ago had said in a promise that he would send his spirit. In those days, I will pour out my spirit, says the Lord. And Peter says, that's what's happening. God is fulfilling that promise that he made through Joel. That's what's happening right now. It's what you're seeing. But, but let me be really clear. It, the spirit, is, it's real, but it's actually not the main event. That's not the main thing that's happening here. This whole thing is actually about somebody else. It's about Jesus. It's about this Jesus. And so in verse 22, Peter launches into this Jesus. And he talks about him as, as this man, this man that, well, you all saw him, right? And you saw him eat, you saw him walk, you saw him sleep, you saw him tired. I mean, we just read, Karen just read in Mark, and everyone was astonished in Galilee and his fame spread throughout. That's not even in my notes, but that's super helpful because that's exactly what happened. It says that that. He did mighty works and wonders and signs. And this is what's awesome is that Peter doesn't just go like, I mean, wouldn't it be nice to believe that that's what happened? No, that's not what he says. He says, and he did them in your midst. Okay, maybe you didn't get that. In your midst, as you yourselves know, almost like it's just begging a like, right? Like you all know, right? I mean, like, you know, he did all these things. He's been talked about for the last three years. Everyone's going, who is this guy? What does he do? Is he the Messiah? You heard it in Mark. Like, could this be, who's this guy with authority? So we all know, right? And you see the whole crowd just kind of nodding their heads, kind of like you are right now. You're not, not nodding your heads. Um, but he, he's just confirming. He's saying, he's saying, Joe, you remember, you were there in the synagogue when, when Jesus talked to the man and he, his shriveled hand got, got fixed on the Sabbath and all the Pharisees were angry. You were there. You remember that? And, and Sarah, you remember hearing about your brother that he was up on the hill in Galilee when Jesus, he fed 5,000 people with just, with just a couple of fish and some loaves. We've all seen it. He was there. He did these things. It's for real. And you know it, right? No one's disputing that. Well, Peter then kind of turns. He says, well, let me, let me explain something. It was God that was doing that through him. Do you, know, do you know why God was doing that through him? He was doing that through him because he was going to, he says, attest to him. He was attesting to the fact that this is someone special. No, this isn't just someone special. This is the Messiah, He's showing off that the things that he is going, that this Messiah is going to say, this Jesus was saying, were from him. He attested to the reality that Jesus was the Christ. And those wonders attested to his words. And then Peter goes on, he says, so, so we saw him. This was actually underneath. God is actually the one doing this through him, confirming that he is the Christ. And then, and then you crucify him. Well, he gets crucified, and then he turns and says, oh, well, you crucified him. We're going to get back to that in a minute. You crucified him. That should be the end of the story. But, of course, it's not. That's not the good news of the gospel. The good news of the gospel is that's not where it ends. That's just the beginning. It didn't end there. God raised him up, Peter says. This Jesus could not stay dead. Death could not keep a grip and hold on him he was raised and he was taken, as, as Peter points out, to the right hand of the Father. And we saw it. And we talked about this week one that, 
that they're all witnesses having actually seen it. And Peter's saying, just so we're clear, I know y'all saw him alive. You saw him do all these deeds, but we saw him alive after he had been crucified. You saw him crucified, some of you, but we seen him alive. And we saw him raised to the right hand of the Father. It's, it's for real. We bear witness to that. We are witnesses to that. It's not secondhand or thirdhand knowledge. Oh, and by the way, men and women of Israel, this is what David was talking about. I mean, you all have a biblical construct. You're all part of the Testament. You know, there was no New Testament. It's just the Testament. You're all, you're all Testament people, right? So you understand, like, this has actually been talked about a long time ago. David talked about, he, he prophesied about the fact that, that death could not hold him. And then Peter goes and does this kind of logical thing. He's like, and just so we're clear, David wasn't talking about himself, right? Because we all know where the grave of David is, right? He's, he's experiencing decay right now. We did the whole like school field trip thing and walked by the grave. Like he's there. So he couldn't be talking about himself, right? He's talking about somebody else. Do you guys get it? He's, talk, he's been talking about somebody else the whole time. He's been talking about this Jesus. This Jesus who must, is that the right hand? The right hand of power that he belongs with God? He's the one who's worthy to be in his presence? Yes, Peter says. That's, you've come around. See, now we all understand what's been happening. We're on the same page. You see, now we're all thinking. We're all engaged in the reality of what's happened. And then Peter concludes, he wraps the whole thing up with this argument that says, so if this Jesus is the one who was raised to the right hand, well, he's the one who's pouring out the spirit. God gave it to him and now he's pouring it out on all that you see today. This is the good news of what's unfolded. David talked about it and, and now here it is. And your witnesses to seeing it happen. Can you believe it? That's Peter's sermon. He's basically saying, you must understand, you must see, you must know the truth of this Jesus. And they were struck with the truth of this Jesus. It made sense to them. They found it to be credible and real. They're like, yeah, yeah, oh, well, that, yeah, I guess that does make sense. That does follow, and their hearts and their minds were changed. Is Jesus the Christ? He's the Christ? He's the Christ. So what must we do? We have to be struck by Jesus. We must be struck by the truth of who Jesus is, who he, who he actually is. Not a means of making our life work, but in light of what he actually said, of what he actually did, and of what he actually calls us to in reality. We don't receive a Jesus of our own making as comfortable as that might be. No, we see and receive him as he is, which means that if you don't know this Jesus as he really is, like you must know him. You must, you must read about him. You, you must go to the gospels and Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. You, you must see him doing and acting and, and relating and, and doing miracles. And you, you must study how he, how he connected to people and, and how strong he was and how meek he was and how powerful he was and, and how he suffered and how he rose. You, you got to see him as he actually is because it's reality. And if you haven't seen Jesus in a while, you must see him as he is in the pages of scripture. You must, you must see him in the word. But not just through the pages of the New Testament. One of the things that's, I think, imperative for us as we, as we learn to grow in Christ is that we see him throughout all of scripture. 
Understanding that the scriptures are about him, that, that they point to him, that, that they anticipate Jesus. Tim Keller says, according to the New Testament preachers and authors, Jesus is the point of every part of the Bible. Jesus is the climax of every theme of the Bible, and Jesus Christ is the true and better version of every figure in the Bible. I don't know if there's been a more transformative, personally transformative understanding in reading the scriptures than this. That the whole thing has always been about him and is still all about him. Peter points to Jesus even in this passage as being the true and better David. I mean, he's the true and better David. Right? He, he's the ultimate king. He's, he's the everlasting king on the throne, right? David died and decayed. And just think about David. He, he's the true and, and better David. David indeed was strong and, and he faced an enemy at the risk of his own life. But, but Christ faced his enemy at the cost of his life. He, he didn't just slay a physical giant. No, no, Jesus is the true and better David. He, he slew the giants of the eternal science of sin and, and death forever. And, and just like David, who, who won the victory over Goliath, though no one else lifted a finger, and yet the victory was given, it was imputed into the nation. It was imputed to every soldier who stood back, even though that was given to them. Well, even more so, Christ, as he overcame the victory, as he died on the cross for us, he imputes to us all the benefits. All the victory is ours. See, he's the true and he's the better David. Paul says that he's the true and the better Adam. That, that Jesus passed the test in the garden. That at Gethsemane, that, that he took on all the, the thwarting arrows of Satan and he rebuffed them. He pushed them back. He passed the test so that he would be a perfect sacrifice on our behalf. And he becomes the first seed of a new humanity. He's, he's a true and a better Adam. Jesus himself says he's, he's true and a better Jonah. Someone greater than Jonah is here, he says. As you look at the pages of the Old Testament, he's, he's a true and better Isaac and, and, and Abraham and, and, and Ruth and, and Boaz and, and Esther. And he's true and better Noah. And, and, and he's a true and better Isaac. According to Hebrews, Jesus is a true and better high priest. He's the ultimate sacrifice. Jesus is the ultimate Passover lamb, the ultimate temple, the true temple of God. The Bible is not about the fact of figuring out what we need to do. There are many commands in the scriptures. It's not about what we need to figure out how to do so that we can be pleasing enough to God that he will hear our prayers and receive us as wherever we are, take us to heaven one day. No, the, the truth of the Bible is that God did, that he came down from heaven in order that we may receive him have peace with him, enjoy eternal life now and into eternity. The Bible is not primarily about us. And all the authors and all the preachers in the New Testament point to that. They're just always talking about Jesus and how Jesus, the ultimate thing, affects you. So it's, it's not not about us, but it's primarily about him. And we must read all the scriptures in light of that. We must we must see it. It must, it must like pop off the page to us. And, and ironically, this is one of those things that's actually kind of a discipline. The, the more you know it's true, the more you find yourself finding it. Let me give you an example. 
A couple weeks ago, um, before the service, uh, the, the elders and a few others pray in the, in the library back there, which you're all invited if you want to come pray. Um, we just spend about 30 minutes or so praying, praying for y'all. We pray for you as you're driving in your car. And, um, so our time of prayer is usually begun by one of the elders or so or someone just reading a passage, usually a psalm. And so Will Rumbaugh read Psalm 95. Um, psalm 95 is an amazing psalm, by the way. So it starts off with ch- chapter, verse 1. It says, Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Right? I mean, this makes you ready for prayer. And then it goes all the way down. It gets down to verse 7. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, for he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Like, yes, I want to be those people. I want to be those people. Amen. But then it turns in verse 8. Uh-oh. Today, if you hear his voice... Do not harden your heart as Meribah, as at Meribah and on the day of Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work for 40 years, I loathed this, the gen, that generation and said, they are a people who, got, who go astray in their hearts and they have not known my ways. Therefore, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. You don't want to be those people. So Will gets to the end of, of, of reading that section, and he goes, and he literally, I think something, I'll, I'll paraphrase, something like, well, God, this ended kind of rough. <laughs> <laughs> and there was something, we prayed a little bit, you know, like, and I heard, I think, I forget who was praying, and said, like, Lord, we don't, wanna, we don't want this to be true of us. Like, we don't want to be the people who turn us straight. Please help us not to be like the people of Massa and Meribah. And the first thing that hit me was, we are those people. We are those people. Like left to ourselves, that's exactly what we do. We forget the things that God's done and say, oh, we run to our own ways. Of course, that's what we do. We're not better than the children of Israel. We're just like them. What do I need? I need a rescue. My heart's hardened. I'm going somewhere. Stay with me. What did God do at Meribah and Massa? Do you know? Exodus chapter 6, 17. They're angry with God. Where's our water? And so God looks at Moses and he says, I am going, he says, I am going to stand on the rock. He says, I want you to take the staff that I give you. I want you to go up on the rock and I want you to strike the rock. Strike the rock. And he does so and living water pours out to this generation who turned from God. And Paul in 1 Corinthians 10 takes this and says, I don't know if you're aware of this, but the rock was Christ. So he, he's, he's looking back into the Old Testament. He's saying, the rock was Christ. And, and, and the rock was struck by the rod of God's wrath and judgment and justice so that living water could be poured out upon all those who are undeserving. A bunch of people at Mara and Masa, Maraba and Masa. And then Hebrews 4 tells us that because of what Christ has done, because he was struck, Because he received the wrath that God swore, that we can enter the rest. Hebrews chapter 4 says, let us now enter that rest. But God just said, those people, like you and me, none of them enter my rest. You see, because someone had to be struck. You see, you see Jesus? Like he, he's in Exodus 17. He's in, he's, in, he's in Psalm 95. He's in, he's in Hebrews 4. He's in 1 Corinthians 10. 
He's everywhere. We must see him as he is throughout all of scripture. And my desire for you would be that, that as you read the scripture, which, which we must, we must see him as he is. All of the scriptures that, that you would see him, Old and New Testaments, in the Gospels and in Leviticus, that, that he would come off the pages as the one who came to rescue from the beginning, because from the beginning you needed rescue. I needed rescue. This is a little aside, a side note, some nice side application. But um, one of the things that Peter does here is, is that in this in this sermon, we're back to the sermon now. Um, a little Old Testament tour. Um, one of the things he does in this sermon is that he he talks right into their culture. Like he, he walks right into their, to the, to the Jewish worldview. Everyone he's talking to is Jewish. So he's pulling out, you know, David and, and Joel and whatever. And, and let's just be really honest. Like if you go to the office or, or, or in your neighborhood and you start talking about like, but of course, you know, in Joel, as you well know, you know, the Lord said, they're gonna be like, Joel, Joel Blackburn. He's famous. Sorry. I don't know if you guys knew that, but no, but nobody's gonna be like, what? David De- decay. I'm sorry. What are we talking about? Right. Peter's speaking into their context, and oftentimes one of our greatest challenges is, is we don't know how to speak this kind of a message, this kind of life-giving transformational stuff into the context that we live in. And so we don't say anything because we're not sure how to. And, and one of the things that we feel strongly about is that some of our job is to help and equip in that end. And so we're going to take the season of Easter, and, and we're going to focus those, that seven-week period, it's actually six weeks, but seven, seven weeks, and the season of Easter, and we're going we're gonna to focus on this, this study called um, Everyday Questions that Rabbi Zacharias Ministries has put together to help us know how to enter, like Peter did, into the context that God has put us in, because we must, because we must. So how are we cut to the heart? How are they cut to the heart? They're struck by the truth about Jesus. We must be struck by the truth about Jesus. Have you been struck by the truth about Jesus? Secondly, we must be pierced by the death of Jesus. As I read a little bit earlier, he says, This Jesus whom you crucified. We are cut to the heart when when the crucifixion, when the death of Jesus becomes personal. His death must transition from from a concept that took place kind of in general out there and come to rest specifically and squarely on our shoulders. Peter says, repent, each of you, each of you, it, it is personal. It must become personal. See, before we're, we're cut to the heart, we understand sin more likely as having broken God's law, as having, having gone against God's ordinances. Or maybe if you have no concept of God, just like against the rules of the universe. But, but that's what we're going against. I'm cutting across the grain. And so when I do that, I, I, well, I feel a little guilty. I feel like that was, you know what, there's a better me out there that should have not done that. And it did cost some people some things. So you feel a little bit of guilt, a little bit of shame. But, but it, it will not... It will not change us. It can't change us. But after you've been cut to the heart, we realize that our sin hasn't been the breaking of God's law or the laws of the universe, but, but the breaking of his heart. 
It's when you realize it's not just some general thing that's happened. It's, it's the fact that I have crucified him. That it's personal. That I've broken his heart. And, and Peter knows this incredibly well. If you recall, Jesus had told him, hey, just want you to know, we've been together three and a half years, but on this night, when I'm going to be, you're going to also be one of those who betrays me. You're going to be one of those who's going to deny me. And Peter, of course, says, no, 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 no way. I'm, I'm number one. And, you're, and he was kind of the number one disciple. And so, no, 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 it's not going to happen. And if you know the Bible at all, you know what happens. He finds himself outside of the court and Jesus is getting beat and spit at and hit and he's swollen and his beard's been pulled out. And, and Peter three times in a row denies that he knows him. At one point, calls curses down from heaven. That's like denial, like on steroids. Like calls curses down from heaven saying, no, 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 no. No, I don't know that guy. Who? And then in, I think one of the most palpable moments in the scripture, somehow Jesus and Peter lock eyes as the rooster crows. And Peter remembers. And he says he goes out and he weeps bitterly. Do you know why he wept bitterly? Not because he had broken the command, thou shalt not lie. It's because he saw it. He saw he was crucifying Jesus. It was personal. It was him. He did it. He was doing it to him. The one he said he loved. And he saw it and it cut him to the heart. I'll never forget... Um, the week after, uh, the week that we told my folks, um, I was 17, that Becky and I were pregnant, um, I remember I was like trying to figure out my life. Like I was like girding up to figure out how I was going to make my life work. And I remember walking by my parents' door uh, one evening late and um, it was closed. And I heard my dad, who I love, heard my dad crying and in distress over his son. And it was the first time, it had been days now, it was the first time that I realized I hadn't just broken the rules. Do you know what I mean? Like I hadn't just gone against what my dad had taught me. That, that I had slept with my girlfriend. I don't sleep with your girlfriend. Yeah, I, I get that. No, like I had broken his heart. And so I, I, I remember retreating to my bedroom and just weeping and weeping because, because I saw my sin on him. And that's just... It's a big deal, but it's just my earthly father. It's not cosmic in the nature of what he accomplished for me. Yeah, my dad has provided for me, but I was cut to the heart. We must be cut to the heart. And we see not when we've just broken the law, but when we've broken his heart. We don't just try and bend our behavior like we do when we know we've done something wrong, but we're melted. You're only going to become a different person when the gospel melts you, when you're not bent but by the heat of his love and delight and hope and sorrow over your sin. You are melted. We are melted, and it gives us a willing obedience, willingness to repent. And here's what's wild about this. None of this can happen to any of us without the Holy Spirit doing it. Like, you can't sit here this morning and try and muster this up. Like, you can't, like, put the Holy Spirit, you can't put the paddles on you of, of I, okay, I want to be cut now. It won't work. It doesn't work that way. The Holy Spirit has to move upon you, and, and he must cut you to the heart, which means your invitation is God of heaven through your spirit, whose job it is, according to Jesus, to convict the world of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. Like, it's his job. He knows what, how to do it. 
will you cut me to the heart? Will you expose and reveal? Will you show me? Which makes me ask you, are there there parts, are there areas of your life, are there sin patterns in your life that, that at all times you are keeping between, behind your back, between you and the crucified Christ? That you don't want to bring him face to face with the one who experienced that sorrow on your behalf. You just can't. So it stays back here. Loved ones, to be cut to the heart means to have it in front and to say, I don't know what to do about this. I'm not sure anything's ever going to change, but, but will you cut me to the heart on this? Will you help me see how this manifests itself on your face, in your eyes, you who loved me so? It must come before him. So that is how we are cut to the heart. I promise the others are shorter. So what is our response to being cut to the heart? You see the desperation here, right? In verse 38, they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? What you said about Jesus is true and what you said about us is true. What do we do now? Peter answers, Verse 38, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ. Repent and be baptized. Two two parts of one movement. One movement of faith, one movement of, of surrender. They're not two separate things that you do at two different times. They are one movement of repentance. And, and to repent is, is simply, it's metanoia. It's just, it's to turn. It's to have a change of heart and mind. It's to, to relate to Jesus as both Lord and Christ. Peter's very explicit. He said, God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, this Jesus, which he says it like three times. Amazing. There could be a whole sermon just called this Jesus, but we don't have time for that. Um, He's made him Lord and Christ. And some of what it means to repent is not just to believe, though it is partly to believe, but it's actually to see him as Lord as divine ruler, as the one who has total claim on everything about you. On your body, on your time, on your money, on your marriage, on your relationships, on your future, on how many days you have on this earth and how you spend those days on this earth. He has total claim of all of that. Everything is his. He is Lord. We must repent and relate to him as Lord and we must repent and relate to him as Christ as Messiah, as the royal deliverer, the only savior, not a backup plan to how I think I can make my life work, but if it doesn't work, maybe Jesus can come through. Jesus cannot be a backseat savior to your quest for the perfect spouse or the model children who through, of course, their affection and and devotion will rescue you from loneliness and maybe protect you from, from rejection. He can't be a second tier Messiah as you search through an ideal career that will maybe fulfill you and maybe the accolades will deliver you from futility and a sense of insignificance, now he, he must be the Savior. Jesus can't be plan B on your pursuit to build up cash or, or goods, uh, storing up a, a nest egg of retirement 
so that you can be saved from, from fear and from the uncertainty of the future. No, he must be the savior. There are no ifs, then, it's just him. And to repent, as I said, is not just to believe, but it's, it's a recognition that I must lay down my life for him who has laid down his life for me. This is the trickiest thing about our church is that um, we don't pretend that Christianity is uh, easy or that it won't cost you anything. If anything, and if you're coming to a newcomer's event today, I will remind you, like, Jesus wants all of your life. It's going to cost you your entire life. Like, his invitation is come and die. Come and die. That you might live. You see, repenting means putting all of that down and saying, you're my Lord and you're my Christ. What's awesome about that is that that doesn't end. That's just the continual life of the Christian, that all of life, as Luther says, is repentance over and over and endlessly. We repent and we're baptized. We're, we identify with Christ as the most precious thing, as the most powerful thing. It's, it's like those shirts that say, like, I'm with stupid or I'm with, what you know, this is like, I'm with him. Like at all times, the truest thing about me, my identity, my, my fundamental is him. Like I'm always with him. If that makes me look stupid, then I'll, I'm with him. If that ostracizes me, I'm with him. I'm with him. My identity is in him, period. To be baptized into Christ. And, and by being baptized, we're also baptized into a bunch of other people that are like, yeah, we're with him too. Give to be a new community, and we'll get to talk about that next week. So what are the results of being cut to the heart? Responses, repentance, identification and baptism to Christ. What are the results? Well, here's the cool thing. This could seem crushing, but, but it's not. To, to, to see Christ and, and to be cut to the heart, it seems like that would be crushing. Like, who wants that? That sounds terrible. Let's hide stuff. No, it could be crushing, but it's not. The conviction is the comfort. We see him crucified because of our sin, yes. But simultaneously, we see him choosing to die on a cross because he loves us. Do you see? They're inextricable. The greatest comfort you should have in, in your life is that he actually sees all of you as you really are, and he still chose to die for you. Can you believe it? Nobody loves you like that. I'm sorry, but nobody, not your mama, loves you like that. Only God loves you like that. And he stayed on the cross with all of your grime on him because he loved you. And so, yes, it is, it is painful to see as we take our personal sin and go like, I crucified him. But it's like I crucified him and he stayed. He stayed for me. That changes everything. That's comfort. Like it is, it must be well. I mean, if that is true, then what can be taken from me? What rejection is really going to, he knows it all and he's seen it all and he's, he's paid it all. Our conviction is our comfort. And you see, the results are, are pretty cool. Verse 38, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Someone who's been cut to the heart is someone who walks around going like, my sins are forgiven. 
oh, I've experienced the conviction of it, no doubt about it. And I have incredible comfort in knowing that, that he chose even though. Maribah and Massa, yep, that was me, but, but he chose. He was struck for me, and so my sins are forgiven. Nothing separates me. And we get the Holy Spirit. We talked about that last week, and one of, one of his jobs is to remind me of my adoption, of what's, what's truest about me, that I belong to him, that I can never be taken away. The Spirit, the Spirit seals me. It's like nobody's getting in here and nobody's taking you out. And so it is well. And one of the results of when we repent is we get instantaneously today brought in. There's no long pilgrimage. It says, and on that day, 3,000. Now I imagine of those 3,000s, like there were some troublemakers who probably had a, a lot to repent of. And then there was some self-righteous people who had even more to repent of. On that day, 3,000 of every size and shape and age, 3,000 on that day. You see, when you cut to the heart, you move into and towards God. You seek to receive him. It's the only response. You repent and you receive. And you're in. You belong to him and you can never not belong to him again. Which is why this table is amazing. You do realize that, right? This table is a table of both conviction and comfort. It's the one that's supposed to remind you, like, this is the reality of what, what your sin costs you. Your personal, your personal affront to the ultimate loving God who had only good for you, this is what it cost him. And, and, but he paid it for you. He, he chose to stay. And so you can come and receive comfort that you know it's well. He declared it by dying. And then he says... And this is just the beginning. I'm coming back. So every time you do this, remember, I'm coming back to make all things new and all things well. We're no longer conviction, but only comfort. That's what awaits us. And that's what this table reminds us of. So this is a table for people who've been cut to the heart. Have you been cut to the heart? Have you been cut to the heart right now? And if so, repent. Turn to Christ. Say, you know what? It can't be my life. It must be your life. I'm tired of trying to make my life work for me. It doesn't work. This is a table for those who've been cut to the heart. So if you've been cut to the heart and if you repented, then come and receive the body and the blood of Christ, the great reminders that he is for you and that to be for you, it cost him everything, that you may be changed and transformed into his likeness. One day all shall be well. Let's pray. Father, Thank you for this, first of all, thank you for the grace of, um, of the account of hearing how the Spirit moved in their midst. The narrative of how you have established from eternity past a plan and a purpose that Christ would come and that your Spirit would descend and that the church would spread and the good news of the gospel would transform nations and individual hearts. And so we want to be, we thank you that we are a part of, like we're grafted into that story. So we celebrate that today, but most significantly we're grafted into you. And so we take that and receive that through the, through the elements, through the cup. 
like it cost blood. And yet your blood is our comfort. And so we receive both the cup and the bread, being reminded that we belong to you and that all of who we are is yours. And so we also lay it down as we come and receive that our lives may be pleasing, a pleasing aroma to you, to the praise of your glory. Even now, come Lord Jesus, we pray in his name. Amen. If you've been cut to the heart, come and receive the body and blood of Christ for you.